0: The opportunity to work with national colleagues in the work to, on the one hand, teach them, but on the other hand, to to learn from them. The greatest joy is to see some of the things that I've taught them. They are following up on, and now they are teaching me as they carry on the work in the different fields.
1: Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Richard Rodoski.
2: And I'm Emily Wilson.
1: And uh, we have the chance here as we continue this year to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Luther's translation of the New Testament to talk to a huge Bible translation scholar, Dr. Ernst Wenland, who uh, has been a missionary for 50 years mm. in Zambia, worked as a seminary professor and started a Bible translation center in Zambia and worked in a lot of different Zambian languages.
2: So this is just one of an installment of celebrations that we have for the 500th year. And we encourage you to to check all of them out at go.lbt.org slash 500 and be able to to check out like what is happening in the world of Bible translation and how partners around the world are coming together with this vision for God's Word at the center of the church and how transformative it is. And Dr. Wendland was able to share that.
1: Yeah, we had him here for the Concordia Mission Institute, and then he came out in here and uh, we talked in the studio and about a wide range of topics. So Yeah, I think that you guys are going to just enjoy uh, hearing from Dr. Wendland, both the depth of the professional work that he's done, but also just personally his life uh, of service and um, what the Bible means to him. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Ernst Wendland. So we are in the podcast studio today with Ernst Wendland, and great to have you with us today. Thank you. Before we get started here, I'd like to learn a little bit about your background. Uh, How'd you get involved in Bible translation ministry? What brought you to Africa in the first place?
0: Yeah, I think we really have to begin there because, in fact, it wasn't I that came to Africa. It was my father who was called as a missionary, a Wells missionary in 1962, to start the worker training program for our mission in northern Rhodesia at the time. So he... Brought the family along. That's husband, wife, and six children. Mm-hmm. So that was my first introduction to Africa. And then later on, I went to school for two years in Zambia, Northern Rhodesia, and then returned, did my college work at Northwestern College. And I was sort of wondering I wanted to get into Bible translation in some way. I had some contact, as I mentioned this morning, with LBT. But then there was an emergency call at the Lutheran Seminary where my, my father had started. Uh, they needed somebody to help teach out at the Lutheran Bible Institute. So I was on an emergency call then in 1968, and that sort of got me started at the, at, in the teaching program. My call was extended, or actually made permanent then, established if you want, in 1971 when, after I got involved in translating church literature. So I was then called as the language coordinator for publications in 71. And that, as far as my church work goes, uh, was how I got started in Africa. I might just add, when when we talk about what brought me to Africa, I think I wanted to add one comment on that. Sure. And how did I stay in Africa? What kept yeah. me in Africa? Sure. And I just wanted, since we were talking about relationships this morning, it was a wonderfully supportive wife and family. That mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you last for 50 years, you've got to have more. Uh, Than just um, longevity and uh, desire, you have to have that support. And I really appreciated that, that they had through the years.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. By the way, do you remember your dad's church before he took the call? It was St. Matthew's at Harbor. Yeah, it. so that's where I went to church when I was a kid, too. Is that right? And, and oh. uh, your dad was still a hero. But, I mean, I didn't—yeah, I started going to church there in 1982 and oh. was confirmed there in 1987. But, yes, it was still like— Everybody still talked very fondly of uh, your dad. So, yeah, I was just curious. He how. enjoyed the ministry there. Yeah. He enjoyed life there in Benton Harbor. Quite a place. But, yeah, so that's where I'm born and raised oh, as well. So wonderful. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, you were you started there at the seminary. And you had had some contact with LBT, so you had some interest in language and so forth. So, how did you learn the Chichewa language? Is that part of your call there or something you were already doing uh, well, while you were living there before?
0: I, I realized that to get involved in translation, I would have to learn one of the major Bantu languages. And Chewa, that's how it is known in, in Malawi. It's the national language of Malawi, Chichewa. It is known as Chinyanja in Zambia. Mm-hmm. So I started with lessons that were taught by a missionary. He went through the Peace Corps course and did all sorts of drills and that, so that got me started. But one of my main helps was the students at our seminary. Since Nyanja was sort of the lingua franca of, of Lusaka, the city there is actually the capital of Zambia, mm-hmm. the students all spoke it, and I would try to identify those who came from Malawi and sit with them, try to get with, uh, sit down with one of them an hour a day or so and just try to do conversation. So that was an important way to get from the book uh, into actually using the language. And then I think one of the things that helped me a lot was I listened to radio programs and not only listened, I recorded them, especially drama, Christian uh, not Christian drama, but secular drama Mm -hmm. stories, and that's really what got uh, got me into my dissertation work. And then I I did some field work out in the eastern province collecting folktales. So that's basically how I tried to learn it was a you never really say you learn the language
1: you're always learning the language and yeah. i continue to try to dialogue with students when i teach them so how were you trained for the bible translation ministry then of course the language learning skill is a is a great asset and number of informal ways you can learn on the job if so there are other ways that you trained formally and informally well as it so happened i learned
0: about gene nida of course when i was re- doing reading and bible translation mm-hmm. And he happened to be offering a UBS translation workshop in Kampalo, Uganda, 1969. I I wasn't a UBS staff member or anything, but I wrote and asked if if I could attend, if I paid all all my fees and everything. I was accepted there, so I took a three-week course there, and that uh, introduced me to Gene Nida, Mm. who was at the time bringing out uh, TAPA, the Theory and Practice of Translation. So that got me in on the ground floor with dynamic equivalence translation. Then later on in 1971, I took a three-month SIL course in uh, the United Kingdom, Horsley's Green, and that was very helpful because the instructors there were Katie Bownrell and uh, the Callows, John and Kathleen Callow. Mm-hmm. They had guest lectures. Ken Pike was in Longacre Grimes. It was just a constellation year of all the grades of SIL yeah, <laughs> wow. came in that summer, yeah. and so I was introduced in that way. Then they encouraged me. Actually, Gene did to do my doctoral work, and I asked, "Where should I? What would you advise?" He advised not to go into biblical languages. I already had undergraduate work in that. But he said, "If you're going to do translation work in Africa, there's one place that I recommend, and that was at the University of Wisconsin." which offered an, uh, the Department of African Languages and Literature. He yeah. said, get a doctorate there. Wow. That'll really help you. And uh, Phil Noss was, was there, and he was my advisor. So that was a, a great help. I was there for 74 to 79 working on a doctorate there.
1: All right. So then you uh, worked as a United Bible Society's translation consultant. We talked on our podcast before about translation consultancy, but maybe just really briefly <laughs> describe what a translation consultant does. Well,
0: a a UBS translation consultant was responsible for managing the translation program on the ground in the different parts of Africa. Uh, Jacob Lowen was my predecessor. He was there from 71 to 74, and uh, I sort of served as his TA, and we'd visit different projects, encourage him, some project we'd be starting. At the particular time, we were producing dynamic equivalence translations. Mm and so that's uh, and so it's a manage uh, training training s- translators reviewers and so forth just uh, all general all around management work that you do to keep these projects going and to
1: ensure quality control okay and so yeah what i guess geographic area or how many projects did you do what did that look like in terms of your assignment and the scope of it okay well when i took over from jake at first
0: as an honorary Uh, I did my work. I should mention uh, pro bono. That is, I wasn't getting two salaries. I sort of uh, put it together with my teaching work, and Wells allowed me to do that. Hmm. So I established the Lusaka Translation Center on the campus of the school. They gave me a a room there, and we worked on about a dozen full Bible revisions and new translations over the years. So um, I had a a manuscript examiner and right. a keyboarder there okay. in the office.
1: All right. And so this was then uh, done, as you're saying, in conjunction with your work, your primary, if you will, I guess, work as an instructor at Lusaka Lutheran Seminary. How did that all fit together?
0: Yeah, it was a sort of challenge at times uh, to try to balance the, all the balls in the yeah. different jobs that, uh, that I had to do there. But it was actually mutually beneficial because the seminary students that I had often could help me in checking a different transla- tra- translation of a different language, so I say Tonga as opposed to Nyanja. So they helped me in that way. And uh, when I would work with Bible translation teams, then I'd be working with different students at different levels, and they helped me to become a better teacher, I think. So I think that the, that the two types of uh, work uh, really complement one another, another, if you want to put it that way.
1: Yeah, definitely. So it is a great situation if the church has the idea of Bible ministry and the importance of Bible translation as a key component of what they're doing at some point, educational and even, you know, in my world now as a Bible translation organization administrator, I mean that's what we're we're striving for is to to have the church have Bible translation and scripture engagement as a central part of mission. So it's a it's pretty unique that you know for decades that's in, in some small sense what you were doing.
0: Well, I must give yeah. uh, credit to Wells. I don't think we were involved in any other Bible translation except uh, some of the seminary profs did work on the NIV. Yeah. But to be actually involved in on-the-ground Bible translation work that they allowed me to do that yeah. uh, was a credit to them.
1: So you've been talking some, you mentioned about dynamic equivalence, so let's talk a little bit about translation styles and sort of define for the listeners what these uh, different styles are, and if the, in the English-speaking world, you know, what Bible sort of looks like that style, I guess. So dynamic equivalence, well, let's see, that's the best way, I guess there's sort of a range, so how would you like to go about talking about it? um... Okay,
0: yeah, it's... um... Uh, let's start with formal correspondence translation. Okay. Uh, an example would be the ESV or NRSV. This is a translation type that seeks to reproduce in the target language as many lexical and grammatical forms of the biblical text as possible. It aims to give the reader a picture of the recorded linguistic features of the Old Testament or New Testament, okay. sometimes called literal translation. Mm-hmm. A functional equivalence version, then also earlier called dynamic equivalence, uh, is uh, exemplified by the GNB Good News Bible or the New Literary Translation. This is a translation that seeks to convey the semantic content as well as some of dynamic impact and appeal of the biblical text. Now to do this, often the original lexical and grammatical forms of the biblical text have to be changed in order to accomplish this to communicate the main functions of the biblical text, whether to give information, to express the feelings of the speaker, or to affect the, the audience in a natural way. This is sometimes also called a meaning-based ver- a version. Then we might have what I term medial equivalence, what we have in the NIV, New International Version, a translation that varies between formal correspondence and functional equivalence sometimes retaining the original forms where they are deemed important but more often changing those forms that are considered too difficult or unclear if rendered literally then there's a fourth type called i call it uh, a paraphrase yeah. uh, this is a translation that seeks to be very meaningful colloquial and up to date in the in the target language in english or whatever it thus uh, It feels freer to change or domesticate the forms and sometimes also the content of the biblical text uh, uh, much more so than in a functional equivalence version. For example, an example would be the voice translation where Yahweh of the Old Testament is translated as the eternal. And the word referring to Christ is translated as the voice. Another example of a paraphrase would be the, the psalm songs that my students prepare when they uh, do a version
1: of the text that they do have an exegesis of mm-hmm. and then prepare as a song. Again, I'm going to go off our script a little bit, but of those types of translation, the formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence, without, you know, getting too far into it, sometimes there are folks that really say, you know, it has to be one or the other or one is better than the other. Like, how would you, you know, if, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, what's the right translation or what's a good translation to use? How do you answer that question? It's a pretty popular question.
0: This is one of the things that Gene Knight had taught me, and it it comes out in in Theory and Practice of Translation. How to determine the right translation, I can't do that as a consultant. It depends for whom is the translation intended. And you have to involve the target audience and get them involved. What type of translation do they want and what can best serve the community? Uh, I inherited it uh, two types of versions, in some cases, a very literal early missionary version and then a later dynamic equivalence version, and sometimes I had to prepare a new version. It was too dynamic, and sometimes uh, you had to go for a, a, a toning down of some of the colloquial expressions uh, and terminology to keep the current
1: readership and churches happy. All right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You've written suggesting that Bible translation be conducted using... Literary function equivalent style translating or lifestyle translating. So, what does that mean? Okay, that's a, a long. It's
0: really not a new translation type. It's okay. an expanded uh, version of the functional equivalence type of translation mm. that aims to reproduce the functions of the biblical text using the closest literary or, or oratorical forms of the target language. So, that's the the key difference. Um, the premise is that the Bible is a literary collection of books. It's not just a, a theological treatise. And we want to, to use the full resources of the receptor languages as, as much as we can to reproduce the impact and the appeal, the rhetoric and the artistry of the biblical text to the extent that we can in a modern translation, emphasizing the orality of the text, the text especially in Old Testament poetry where we, like the Psalms, we'd like to reproduce that in a more uh,
1: dynamic, if you will, form that can be even uh, sung if possible. Okay. Let me ask first in the English-speaking world with all the different translations, is there a Bible translation that manifests this approach in English? Uh, There's no full Bible
0: translation uh, uh, that that does this. And why? Because it takes extra time to produce a life translation, and you have to have the translators with the gift. They have to be really poets or... Orators in their mother tongue to do that. Mm. There is uh, several versions. Uh, Brenda Berger of SIL has produced the poet, poetic oracle English translation of uh, the Psalter. That okay. is a what I would call a life version. Also, Timothy Wilt, a former UBS translation consultant, has uh, published a number of books. For example. He calls it pigeon, a reference to Jonah hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. So he has done a number. There's several others. One, I forgot the name of the, the person who's done the Proverbs in a dynamic. So it's individual books, yeah. mainly Old Testament, mainly poetic.
1: Okay, sure. You mentioned that you can't really determine what's the best translation. The audience for whom it's intended has to do that. So in your experience, how do you go about finding that out? Well, what I would try to do was to organize a, an, an
0: initial workshop in the community and try to get as many churches that were in, uh, interested in about like the UBS works with all with all churches mm-hmm. and so the the key was we would produce a a version that would serve all the churches catholic and protestant so that we wouldn't have two bibles right. and so i would organize them discuss the different versions, what, is, what was the problem with the old versions, why do you want a new version, and what sort of... It was a matter of education. We'd have a week-long seminar on, uh, trying to explain the difference between a very literal version and a more functional equivalence, uh, meaning-oriented version, and uh, try to give samples. And uh, see, Most in most cases, they already had an old version, so mm-hmm. it was a matter of producing a new, more meaning-based version. But the main thing was to try to get the churches involved. And what I tried to do was to, in the, in the old days, everything was organized from Bible House, uh, centrally located in Lusaka. Yeah. I tried to organize local committees so that they would take more ownership of the project. So they set up their own administrative structure and everything, that they would be involved in trying to uh, source the translators, be responsible for supporting them, providing uh, accommodation and housing and so forth and uh, to try to get that now that often worked but not often always as as well as i would have hoped sure. as of financial issues okay
1: yeah and i guess just listening to you know this idea that there were already translations there's one sort of if i listen sometimes to the the way that in the bible translation movement the the need is is expressed as here are all these languages without a bible and there's a need to then make sure those all have one and you could one could surmise okay once they have one then that's done right but you would advocate that in a sense well it's never done if i kind of take to the conclusion what you're (laughs) saying
0: yeah well i would like to see actually two types of of translation a more literal one to use perhaps in in church and a more meaning-based one that people can understand People, they confuse this. They feel that because the translation is literal that it's closer, that it's a better translation. Yeah. But all you have to do to disprove that is ask them, what does it mean? I can take any, any passage at all in the old Chewa version that goes back to 1922 and ask people, what does this mean? What does this word mean? And the people can't answer it. So you have a serious problem there sure. if we're interested in true communication. Okay.
1: All right, so to jump in off of that, another area of study that I've read from you is uh, frames of reference and as an approach to translation, as an approach to ministry in general, really as an approach to just understanding what's happening around you, I guess would be a fair way to say it. But talk a little bit about frames of reference as an approach, what that is, and some of the practical implications of using that
0: Framework. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's not uh, it's not necessarily a new translation uh, translation theory or anything. It's more involving cognitive linguistics a little bit in it, but it's a poly system methodology that seeks to explore the different interrelated aspects of a Bible translation process in a more systematic uh, fashion right. with respect to not only the source language but also especially the target language we posit a, a series of, of, of frames, um, the cognitive frames relating to the worldview issues of a, of a culture, whether biblical or so, so, uh, target language, sociocultural frames, which relate to the distinctive aspects of the source or target language's background, social setting. And then the, the one uh, thing that uh, was brought out this morning, a uh, young lady came up and said, this organizational frame, we never yeah. even thought about that. Right. What are the different organizations, religious or other, that play a role in a translation projects in the history of Bible translation? And then you have situational frames relating to the medium of communication, speech acts, and so forth, and zeroing in then finally on the textual frames, the biblical text itself, and normal exegetical analytical procedures.
1: Yeah, so I think from a missiological perspective thinking about things from that frames perspective is really important. Like you said, the young lady who mentioned the organizational frames, because you can, there's the, there is the work of looking in the textual, but there is the whole strategy of looking at what sources or what, what situations are at play. I I think of um, my own missionary experience and think how many times I approach the situation and say, okay, in this situation, I'm approaching this as as a a Lutheran Bible translator's missionary, but in this situation, I'm approaching the same basic thing as somebody who's been seconded to work for the Bible Society of Botswana, and another time, I mean, I've been tasked to represent the Shikalahari-speaking people of Botswana, and I'm, you know, in the same room dealing with the same thing, but trying to think of it from all these different frames of reference, and then I don't know, the complexity of the uh, all the stakeholders in play, the churches, the organizations that are bringing things to bear. It really does, I think, in a way, at first it's complicated, but it helps to clarify or at least get a situation on why is this so complex because there's so many different things going on.
0: It was interesting. One of my students at Stellenbosch uh, did a study of three different translations in Tswana, the okay. major language of yes. Botswana. Yeah. And he explored that and tried to show, using the frames of reference, why why these translations differ. And sometimes it was a worldview issue, sometimes it was organizational, a lot organizational, right. okay. some relating to the current-day situational factors.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then Tim Beckendorf, do you know Tim Beckendorf by never any chance? Met, never met him. Okay, so you, he works in Botswana. He was on the... Podcast recently, and he got to like a specific frames of reference deal that he dealt with in his dissertation. But how the Kwedam speaking people thought they didn't really have a a way of talking about law and right and wrong and things like that until they thought of it from the frame of reference of uh, hunting and the order with which people can take and, and take things and not take things, the order. And, and I don't know if it taboos would be a correct way of saying it, but the point was they were able to finally derive from that there's a reason that people do certain things in a certain way and people then are allowed to do things and other people aren't so that ultimately everyone is protected yeah. and everyone is cared for. And moving from that frame of reference, then they could start to talk about God's law and why God has a law in the first place. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, but really getting down to the textual part where you start to look at frames of reference that way. Yeah,
0: sort of following up on that, I think an important aspect of how do you determine the frames of reference for a, you know a target language today when nothing has been written, yeah. and that's why I encourage translators and try to have a researcher, quote-unquote, on the team who would investigate the, the oral literature, what has been written in the language, so that when you come uh, to a decision that has to be made, say the name of God or Yahweh, can you justify for example, the use of Chauta for Yahweh in Chichewa. Mm-hmm. It's not Yahweh, it's not Yehovah, it's Chauta. It's the high god of the Chewa people, the creator god. Sure. Now you have to do a lot of sort of cultural investigation uh, in, in order to justify why we are using Chauta instead of uh, one of the loanwords that are popular yeah. for that term
1: you mentioned you know 50 years in zambia so talk a little bit about how you have seen the church uh, grow or change over the course of that time in zambia yeah well it's
0: interesting uh, factor the the, the L- lutheran church of central africa lcca is consists, consists of two synods the malawi synod and zambia synod they uh, they have grown since the 1960s very rapidly approaching probably some 50,000 members mm by the turn of the century. But since that time, the, the growth has uh, leveled off, uh, I think, in competition to what we we're talking about this morning, the uh, pressure from sort of the health and wealth uh, Pentecostal type of ministries. And so that, uh, uh, the growth has leveled off. And it has been a challenge, again, as we the missionaries turned over the support of pastors to the national churches. So there is a challenge for adequate pastoral support. Yeah. But on the other hand, in, at the teaching uh, level in both the LBI Lutheran Bible Institute in Malawi and the seminary in Zambia, uh, they're mainly uh, the, all the teachers, uh, not all the teachers, but most of the teachers are mother tongue speakers.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, I, I haven't been to Malawi, but I've been to Zambia a few times and in several places there, and the one thing I can say about the LCCA pastors is every time I've attended a church and and uh, heard preaching and teaching, those are solid, well-trained <laughs> men that are—, are uh, they they know their stuff and they know how to communicate it winsomely and and well and they care for people and that's uh, very impressive it's been
0: a privilege to work with these men i can say that
1: so you know you've worked uh, as a seminary instructor and and a bible translator then for for decades written voluminously about different ways of approaching the work and encouraging others and deep you know scholarship and so forth but what does access to the bible mean for you personally when you know at the end of the day you and your bible what does that mean for you why is that important to you
0: well the access access of scripture as a, a student of scripture makes on the one hand the greek and hebrew uh, available to me then the the mother tongue of course english but then through the different uh, languages that i have worked with the bantu languages they've offered me diverse perspectives i think on on the word of god that i would not have had otherwise And so I I thank the Lord for that opportunity, things that I had never would have seen if I had looked at the biblical text only in English, in my mother tongue, but being able to look at the source languages, and especially in the different target languages that that I worked with over the years, that has been a real blessing, challenging on the one hand, but also made the scripture study fresh and interesting and inspiring for me through the days Uh, and you, one never gets tired then of engaging with God's word when you can learn new lessons every time and look at the different perspectives that the different versions uh, make possible. Yeah. So, um, what brings you joy in in your work? I think over the years, uh, the greatest thing has been uh, the uh, the opportunity to work with colleagues, national colleagues, in the work to, on the one hand, teach them. But on the other hand, to, to learn from them. I think every teacher has to be a, a learner. And I've, I've learned so much from my seminary students and from my uh, translation colleagues and the translators in the field. And as far as my translation staff goes and also teaching staff, the greatest joy is to see some of the things that I've taught them, they are following up on. And now they are teaching me as they carry on the work in the different fields. Yeah.
1: So this is a question I ask on the podcast almost every guest because I find that there's just fascinating answers. So what do you think the Western Christian Church can learn from the folks that you've been working with all these years? That's, you know you name
0: it? Okay, it's it's a question uh, it's sort of hard to answer because I've been working uh, with the African Church uh, all my life and there's uh, might be a danger of me making a, sur- a superficial uh, comparison with the the US church or, or Western Church. Sure. But I think the greatest thing that I've learned over the years is how the African Church has been so open in welcoming me, a, a Westerner, to work among and with them so many, so many years, and to teach me so many things. On the other hand, how how if we turned the tables and, and the scenario, how welcoming would Westerners be to have an African? Uh, teacher and evangelist be working among them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lesson in interpersonal, interracial uh, uh, dynamics that the African church can can teach uh, Westerners how open they were to me. But would the same thing be true if one of them tried to work in the United States, which
1: is uh, in some areas becoming very non-Christian? Yeah, that is an excellent question. I actually had a. Journal article I read where the the Roman Catholic Church in the United States, due to priest shortage, has put in urban areas uh, priests from Nigeria and dealing with the same. It's happened in Europe dynamic, too. In yeah. England, I, I've, I've heard that. Story. fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a. It's a great question. How can our listeners be praying for you and your family? I know this is a, an important time for you right now. So how can we? How can we pray for you?
0: Well, I think. Uh, uh, Margie, my dear wife of 51 years, and I, I guess, would appreciate your prayers as we begin this uh, transition and reentry into American life. It's going to be rather strange uh, and unsettling for us, I think, as we see uh, how different the United States is from what, when we grow up, uh, grew up in, uh, there and left the States in the 60s. She mm-hmm. came to Zambia as a nurse in 69. Wow. And so, Uh, We've never owned a home in the United States, and so that might be (laughs) a bit of a challenge nowadays. But uh, I think I would also welcome uh, the prayers of listeners as I uh, try to continue my uh, teaching and translation ministry, working through schools like SATS, uh, South African Theological Seminary, working with uh, doctoral students who want to work uh, in Bible translation and need an advisor and an encourager along the way. We, We all would appreciate prayers to that end.
2: Sure.
1: Sounds great. Well, we are really thrilled that uh, you were with us here at Concordia Mission Institute, and thank you for being on the podcast today, too, and sharing uh, your perspective. It was great uh, talking with you today. I appreciate the opportunity, a wonderful mission experience that I've had these few days. Thank you. Yeah, reflecting on the interview with Dr. Wendland, I think the thing that is just hard for my mind to wrap around is the 50 years right. of ministry and all the changes, and yet all of the trajectory and the work and thought that he, he has done and done with others that, that continues to build into this ongoing reformation continues, God's word still going out to the ends of the earth and in new languages that began mm-hmm. um, or found a catalyst at the time of Luther in the 500th Uh, translation.
2: Right. There is something, too, of this is a longer process that when people are making a commitment to Bible translation, that it isn't like a one-off, like, okay, you know, this is great. I'll pray for you one day. This is uh, an ongoing partnership. Mm -hmm. And when we call people into it as prayer partners, as financial supporters, as advocates for Bible translation, that people like Dr. Wenland are dedicating their lives right. to to be able to serve with the the goal of God's Word as the foundation for people to be able to have church and to grow, and how powerful that is and transformative that is for the community.
1: Yeah, and really, he was a pioneer, if you will, in this idea of the integral nature of, you know, I'm here as a Seminary instructor for a church, but Bible translation really has to be integral to that as well. And for the the Wisconsin Synod to give that latitude for him to engage in both that seminary instructing and that Bible translation work, again, um, that's the kind of stuff that Bible translation movement stuff is really exploring now: is how to be more integral in the church. And you know, fifty years ago, <laughs> they're already doing that there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zambia is a um, a great example of of how that uh, has worked out and the, uh, some of the, the innovation and the different styles of translation, which are not an end to themselves, but really, if you will, it's sort of a laboratory and looking at how to really work with the church and, and land on what the church really needs after mm-hmm. several different approaches and articulations to land there. And, that, and anyways, it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure how much that comes out in the interview, but all of the, the different styles and things we talked about and all these historical connections, they work themselves out practically in Zambia. And I, I do know uh, when I'm talking with Dr. Wendland before, he didn't really want to get into like all of the, the accolades that are personal accomplishments, mm-hmm. because for him, it was, wasn't about that. It's about God's Word in the hands of people.
2: hmm And again, we want to encourage you, if you're feeling uh, pressed upon you, that you are wanting to join the Bible translation movement as a prayer or financial supporter, as an advocate, today's your day, you know, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary and of Martin Luther's New Testament into the vernacular German. And, you know, it's there's no better time to be able to celebrate uh, God's word in the hands of his people. So join us at go.lbt.org slash 500 to uh, find out how you can join the Bible translation movement and celebrate Martin Luther's 500th anniversary of the German New Testament.
1: Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. You can find past episodes of the podcast at lbt.org podcast or subscribe on Audible, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators' social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. The Essentially Translatable Podcast is produced and edited by Andrew Olson. Our executive producer is Emily Wilson. Podcast artwork was designed by Caleb Rodewald and Sarah Radowski. Music written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Radowski. So long for now.